You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everyone. My name is Andrew Dolan, Director of Cybersecurity Strategic Engagement, Research, and Analytics here at the Retail and Hospitality ISAC. And this is the RHISAC Podcast. In today's episode, we have guests from two outstanding organizations in the cybersecurity world, Trace Labs and the Cybercrime Support Network, or CSN as it is better known. I have the pleasure of sitting down with Bob Berta, Chief Strategy Officer for CSN, to discuss how their resources can inform your security awareness program. But first, Nick Light, who you may recognize from the RHISAC's Dark Web Working Group, chats with Tom Hocker, Director of Trace Labs, an organization which uses open source intelligence to assist law enforcement in finding missing persons. I'll now turn it over to Nick to get things started. My name is Nick Light. I've been an active member of the RHISAC community for roughly about four to four and a half years. I've actively participated in multiple different working groups as well as chaired multiple different working groups. Uh, however, at this time, I'm probably most active in the dark web working group. If you're not sure what that is, make sure you guys come on over and come check us out. We're in the main chat channels and you can also reach out to Mukhtar if you want to get invited into there. So I'm here today with Tom Hawker. He is the director of Trace Labs, which is a nonprofit organization that essentially uses OSINT or open source intelligence to help reunite missing people with their families or assist law enforcement in finding folks that have gone missing. I initially got involved with Trace Labs almost as a, a personal mission, so to speak. I remember about six, seven years ago, when I finally shifted away from what I was doing into the IT space, and I'd always been looking for some way to give back to this community after basically being helped along at each possible moment in my entire life, I, I feel very blessed to be where I am today, and I wanted to kind of pay that, you know, pay that education forward. And I started to reach out on the internet and talk to a bunch of friends. And honestly, I think it was a couple folks inside of RHISAC that pointed me toward Trace Labs. And then I ended up, you know, researching, applied, went through and got vetted, and then ended up doing what I think everybody does initially in these groups, which is you're a wallflower because you're so embarrassed to talk. And uh, you feel so nervous because you have no clue who anyone is. <laughs> they use all these crazy names or, you know, you just don't want to be that person that, that throws in your two cents and everyone's like, who's this guy? Why is he talking? And that's kind of what I did for, for a while inside of Trace Labs up until we had, or I should say they had, uh, one of their mini hunt-a-thon. And I ended up participating as a judge. And I think the first experience I had was this is massively organized chaos uh, I remember going through and trying to judge the influx of all of these people's submissions. So basically, I, I guess I, I'll back up for one second, kind of explain it. So when they run a hunt-a-thon, they give out essentially uh, the folks that they want to do the research on. And then each team that participates will actually try and look for, you know, one individual, all the individuals at once, however they want to run it. But they'll submit each thing that they find for some type of points. So the judges will actually take a look at the vetted information, say, yep, that definitely aligns with what they submit it as. Or if they run into problems or you have to push it back, you know, you can kind of help guide those teams to get them some more points. Obviously, this is definitely in the spirit of a game gamification, but at the same point, it really is directed toward uh, helping out law enforcement with potentially driving new leads. So that was the first experience I had. I think that one lasted for like two or three hours. 
And then the second time that I went back was actually for the Global Huntathon. I got assigned to three teams, and I I very much remember this. It was I think it started at about 11 p.m. my time, and I didn't stop until 6 a.m. the next morning. Uh, it was a very very long night, but it was incredibly. Uh, it was incredibly awesome. You know, ba- based on from where I was in Trace Labs, I did migrate a little bit outside of there to where last year I participated actually in the other end. So I wasn't judging. We actually worked on hunting for those missing folks. And the team that I was on, we actually placed in second place on the Global Huntathon. So that's kind of where I came from. And I did start off in Trace Labs and another series coming on, you know, where I ended up now. But this is kind of the beginnings of my experience with how do I give back to the community? So now that you've heard a little bit about, you know, my personal involvement, I'm going to drag Dragon Tom and get his perspective. So, Tom, I know you're the director of Trace Labs. That's not, you know, it's not your day job. Can you give us a really quick introduction of who you are and how you got involved with Trace Labs? Yeah, Nick, thanks for inviting me into the conversation. Um, it's so funny that you and I have actually been working together, whether we knew it or not, for about three years now. We've been <laughs> a part of the same organizations and sometimes working side by side. So it's just cool to be on a podcast episode with you. So, yeah, my name is Tom. On the Internet, I am Human Decoded, and I am the director of Trace Labs. It's always worth calling out when I have these conversations that I don't do any of this professionally. My day job is retail and not with an infosec or a tech slant. So all of my cyber activities are completely self-taught on the side outside of working hours. But I, I like to bring that up to encourage other people maybe in that same situation to get involved in more tech-oriented organizations. You don't need a degree or a certification or even a lot of experience to help out with a lot of these organizations. So that's my plug for getting involved, even if you're not a, quote, tech person. Because I run this organization, and I'm not a tech person, at least on paper. I started out in that, in that as well, too. I came from a non-technical background, so I'm right there with you. Yeah, so I'm I'm always encouraging people to take that step, get involved. Organizations like Trace Labs are really good entry points into the space. You know, you mentioned you came into Trace Labs and then that led you on to other organizations doing, you know, even more intense things than finding evidence of missing persons. So there are a ton of good communities out there that are supportive, even if you're brand new. So please don't be intimidated. If you're listening to this and you're kind of new to the field or new to the industry, but Trace Labs, I got involved with them completely by accident, more or less. I was out at DEF CON in 2019 for the sole purpose of competing in the SECTF. That's the only reason I went out there. And I just found Trace Labs as one of the contests that seemed cool. I judged that event and I've been with them ever since. So <clears throat> there's a lot to be said for just showing up and <laughs> just being around. But some background on the organization. So Trace Labs is a Canadian-based nonprofit that utilizes crowdsourced OSINT collection to aid law enforcement in missing persons investigations. Those were a lot of words, um, but the, the most important ones were crowdsourced. So as as you mentioned in your explanation, you know, we are bringing together the collective good of the Internet to try and collect open source intelligence to assist law enforcement 
with missing persons investigations. So the OSINT piece there is critical because we're just finding information that anybody could find online. Um, you know, we're not actively hacking anyone's email. We're not actively getting into anyone's accounts, even if we found the passwords. It's all very, very passive reconnaissance. It's all very, very safe. We have very strict rules of engagement on on how our search party CTFs actually work. And the intent is just, I say just, the intent is to give law enforcement a very simple as well as in-depth sketch of a person's social media and online footprint. So I like to maybe draw the analogy. The founder of Trace Labs, Rob Sell, comes from a physical search and rescue background. So you can see a lot of the physical search, maybe terminology or methodology bleed over into the cyber. So we're called Trace Labs because we are looking for traces of people. We're not necessarily, quote, finding missing people, but we are finding evidence of missing people. We're finding where they were, who they talked to, what were they thinking. And by putting all of that into an easy-to-read report for law enforcement, that could give them information that ends up being critical to their investigation that they either might not have found on their own. Maybe they didn't have time. Maybe they did find that. And now we've just reinforced a theory or a hypothesis they had. So they take the information we provide them and hopefully that assists them with that missing persons case. So I'll, I like to point out that we don't necessarily find missing people, um, but we do assist law enforcement with the information that we provide. Very cool, Tom. So one thing that kind of resonated from from what you actually just talked about. So I remember coming back to Trace Labs and I always imagined like the people in a dark room and those like fancy detective hats and the in the cloaks. But I know it's definitely not definitely not internet vigilante solving crimes, but can you talk a little bit about how you work with law enforcement on these real official and you know missing person cases? And then also follow up to that, can you tell us how you get these cases that you've worked on to law enforcement and how do you you know how does that how does that all work? Yeah, certainly. As I mentioned earlier, we have some very strict rules of engagement, and we do work closely with law enforcement. And those two things go hand in hand. I like to consider us investigators with adult supervision. And that's not a slight against any of our community members. But because we are open to anybody, you know, you can be completely anonymous and contributing to the Trace Labs mission. Because we are so open, we've taken a lot of steps to create the safest environment possible for the entire community. And that goes back to what I was talking about, passive reconnaissance only. And there are certainly some more active and legitimate OSINT collection techniques that we don't allow because we're trying to stay as safe for the greatest percentage of our community. But to your question about, you know, working with law enforcement, how do we get these cases? And I'd also like to talk about what kind of cases this model is incredibly useful for. So we do have law enforcement partners around the world, not just in Canada or in the U.S. And when it comes time for one of these events, uh, we will reach out to them and see if they have any cases they would like us to work on. If we're doing an event that's maybe centered more around a geographic location, we'll try and work with local law enforcement. For example, you know, if we're in Las Vegas, we're going to reach out to 
local law enforcement there and see if there are any maybe Vegas-centric cases they'd like us to work on. If the event is catered more towards Australia, you know, we'll reach out to our friends across the ocean there and see if they have any cases for us. They've gotten really good about giving us cases they think we can help with. And what I mean by that is if you think about the model and the collection process that I just described, it really lends itself to people that have an active online presence, to people that are active on social media. If someone is frequently posting to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, then there's something for us to find, especially if the circumstances of their disappearance or of them being missing kind of played out online. Those kind of cases we can be tremendously useful because there's so much information there. It would be incredibly difficult for one detective or one person in the law enforcement community to be sifting through all this on top of, you know, the number of other cases they have to work at a given time. But you take 600 of us spending four to six hours on it. We can collect that information very, very, very quickly and very, very efficiently. The kind of cases where the model isn't as useful are people that don't have an online presence. Just toss it out there. Trace Labs is probably not going to be very useful for someone that went missing in 1987. Like, There's probably not a lot online that we're going to be able to uncover and put together that's going to assist that investigation. I'm not saying that, you know, OSINT, you know, the online OSINT collection can't assist in decades old cold cases. Just the way our model works, it really lends itself towards, you know, people that have been online for, say, the last 10 years or so with a larger social media presence. So that's that's really the cases where we tend to shine. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for going through that. So with that being said, and I know you mentioned this before that you don't necessarily, you know, have to be super highly technical to, uh, from what it seems, you know, I, I know from a fact I, I was not anywhere near as technical as I am now back when I was assisting with the judging. But can you talk a little bit about how like the search party process works and then maybe even talk a little bit about the capture the flag exercises and maybe even include like what you know, if someone was starting out brand new, you know, what things would that individual need to kind of participate? Yeah. So as I alluded to earlier, you know, we're an incredibly open organization where people can come in with little to no technical expertise and still contribute to the mission. The way we've accomplished that is we've tried to gamify the OSINT collection process. And uh, assuming everyone listening to the pod knows what OSINT is, but just in case, when we refer to open source intelligence, we're referring to any piece of information that a regular person could find. You don't need a security clearance to access open source intelligence. You don't need access to special law enforcement only databases to uncover open source intelligence. And the way that we've set it up is anyone with a web browser can compete in a search party CTF or anybody with a web browser can collect open source intelligence. That's not to say that OSINT is only online. There's some amazing OSINT resources offline, but that's a different pod. So anyone with a web browser can compete. And how we've gamified this is working with our law enforcement partners. They've given us the most valuable pieces of information 
that can be found online that would assist them with their investigation. And then we, based off of importance to the investigation, we've then assigned point values to those pieces of information. Those are the flags in the CTF that our teams are competing to find. So social media profiles, who are they interacting with? Um, do they have any tattoos, any piercings, any habits? So that could be, you know, drugs, coffee, just what are they into? Where were they last seen? Is anybody posting about seeing them after their disappearance date? Are they posting after their disappearance date? These are all flags in the CTF that our teams are trying to find, and they've been designated as flags based off feedback from our law enforcement partners. So it's not going to surprise anybody. The team that gets the most points wins. That can be a combination of things. That can be a bunch of lower point flags, which are still valuable. It can be fewer higher point flags or some combination thereof. But by gamifying this process, you know, if I told a brand new person with no expertise, okay, I'm going to sit you down at this computer. I need you to collect all the OSINT you can find on Human Decoded. Go deer in the headlights. But if I sat this person down at a computer and said, okay, hey, um, this person online, uh, they go by Human Decoded. Um, just poke around Facebook and see what you can find. Okay, that gets a lot more approachable. Hey, and here's a, a list of things that would be nice to know. Just see if you can answer any of these questions for us on Mr. Human Decoded. When you break it out like that, it becomes much more approachable. Most of us have OSINT experience, whether we knew it or not, whether it was researching a new job opportunity, trying to buy a house, you know, creeping on your siblings on social media, or your parents creeping on your children. Most of us are already... OSINT professionals, we just don't know it yet. By simplifying it, it's made it so much more approachable, which in the end for us just makes that many more people able to contribute to the mission. Now, you alluded earlier to organized chaos at our search party CTFs. I can assure you they're not less chaotic, but they are better managed. We've certainly gotten better at managing the chaos, but it's still hundreds of people around the world collaborating, trying to OSINT for good. But what that what that actually looks like logistically or mechanically is teams are competing to find these pieces of information, these flags about these active missing persons cases. And we've set up a platform where these teams can submit those flags. Okay, here is Human Decoded's Facebook profile. Submit. The unsung heroes of this entire process are the human beings on the other end of that submission that are reviewing it in real time and either assigning points because it was a valid find or denying those points and telling the team, hey, I don't really think this is a human decoded Facebook profile. So in real time, you have teams submitting flags on this platform. You have volunteer judges on the back end reviewing those submissions, and then that's how the scoreboard populates in real time. There are typically anywhere from 600 to 650 people competing in an event, and there are around 100 volunteer judges on the back end vetting that intelligence as it comes in, and then that's how the event flows. The byproduct of those events, um, you know, someone's going to win, someone's going to get prizes, it's going to be a lot of fun for everybody, but the byproduct of that and the most important part is now all that intelligence is now organized 
in a backend database. Like now we have those thousands of submissions in a way that we can then organize and put together for law enforcement. So it's a really just amazing and beautiful process. You know, at the end of it, it's kind of shocking. Like, God, it all worked again. It's amazing. It's intense. It's fun. It's emotional. It's a lot to deal with. Uh, that's why we typically only run these events several times a year, with the next one being DEF CON in August of 2022. Awesome. Thank, thank you very much, Tom. That was a very, very good explanation. And the, the organized chaos was definitely not a, not, not toward your organization at all. It was just the, the sheer amount of submissions. Like, it's unbelievable. You knock off two and you'll get like 15 back in. It's crazy. But yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed doing both sides of it. And I can tell you with all my heart, I'm definitely behind what you and your organization does. And I love supporting you all. But one other thing I wanted to kind of say is, can you can you talk a little bit about, let's say someone listening to this podcast and goes, man, this is this just sounds like the coolest thing ever. It's better than sliced bread. How would they get in contact with you? Or what's the best way I, I would say to get involved in your initiatives? Well, you know, um, we're an OSINT focused organization. So find us. <laughs> Do you even know Sid, bro? <laughs> what if they wanted the easy button? You got to give them that big red uh, button. Okay, but I guess we all have to start somewhere. <laughs> Tracelabs.org is going to be the sort of the uh, static place to jump off to other, other uh, resources that we have out there. Our community is based in Discord. So discord.gg slash tracelabs. On Twitter, we are at Trace Labs, but honestly, the Discord community is the best place to get plugged in. That's where we drop all of our announcements about upcoming events, upcoming initiatives, news. Uh, we have people asking amazing questions, people giving amazing answers. I'm humbled almost every day by the the passion and the compassion of our community. So as far as I'm concerned, our Discord is the best place on the Internet. I would agree. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's pretty fantastic. There's a lot of folks in there too. And I, I will say, and this is more of me fanboying, but I've met a couple of my personal idols and heroes through uh, your organization as well. And actually that was the gentleman that got me. I won't disclose his name because I won't embarrass him in, in the public, but he was the person that actually got me into the next organization, which we'll be talking about uh, coming up a little bit later this month. But Tom, thank you very much for joining us today. I would encourage anyone to check out some of the volunteer opportunities that Trace Labs provides. Even though you may feel like you're not qualified or not good enough to do any of that stuff, they do run pre-events, like they'll walk you through the point system, they'll walk you through even how to do a lot of this stuff. They make it very, very simple for folks to get involved. So it's one thing, and like I said, th this happened for me back even before I knew pretty much anything, uh, and I was able to help out. You know, did I feel overwhelmed? Yes, because it was just new. Did I feel like I wasn't qualified to judge what they had? Absolutely not, because a lot of the stuff isn't very, you know, it's plain English. Like, this is what it is, and if it's not what it is, you know, you send that point back, and then you can help guide the teams that come in. But I, I just wanted to thank you, Tom. It's where I got my start, where it allowed me to kind of give back to the community finally for some of the things that I've done, and I've been very, like I said, blessed. But I'll be back in another episode on the RHI Sec podcast talking about another organization, which is the one that I've not that I moved on from Trace Labs. I'll definitely try and support and volunteer again. But I've moved more uh, more heavily into an organization called Operation Safe Escape. And then within that one, we'll kind of talk a little bit about how how those volunteers utilize cybersecurity skills to help victims of domestic violence, stalking and harassment. So don't miss that interview, which I think will be coming up later this month. Thanks, everyone. 
We're going to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor, Fortinet. But stick around because after that, Bob Berta from the Cybercrime Support Network discusses their mission and the four most important things to address in your security awareness training program. Today's show is brought to you by Fortinet. Fortinet provides retailers with top-rated cybersecurity solutions covering the expanding attack surface. Advantages include centralized visibility and management, lower TCO, and top performance. Proven threat protection and seamless fabric integration delivers better, faster response to attacks across the entire network, including point-of-sale systems and other devices carrying sensitive information. And Fortinet helps simplify compliance with PCI DSS and other regulations. As digital innovation and the need to provide always-on customer experiences drive network transformation, retail cybersecurity has become more vital. It's essential to have a security partner that can provide simplified security and networking to keep customers' data safe and enable a superior consumer experience. For more information, contact the Fortinet team at retail at fortinet.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm joined by Bob Berna, Chief Strategy Officer at the Cybercrime Support Network. Some of you may remember Bob from our 2021 Cyber Intelligence Summit. He joined us for a panel discussion on protecting consumers. It was a great session, and we're excited to have Bob back with us today to tell us more about the Cybercrime Support Network, or CSN. Bob, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what the Cybercrime Support Network does? Sure. Thank you. First, thanks for having me. I appreciate coming back. And that was a great discussion we had last time. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk to this audience again. Again, my name is Bob Berta. I'm the chief strategy officer and currently serving as interim CEO of the Cybercrime Support Network. And what CSN is, is a, it's a U.S.-based nonprofit. We have a very simple mission to help individuals and small businesses that have been impacted by cybercrime. We do that a number of ways. One of the primary ways we do that is through our website, fightcybercrime.org. And what fightcybercrime.org is designed to do is to take someone who doesn't know a lot about cyber and cybercrime and get them to the right resources they need with just two or three clicks. There's tons of really good resources out there for cybercrime victims. And that's kind of the problem. You know, if you're given a choice of three things, it's pretty easy to pick. When you're given a choice of a thousand things, it's overwhelming and people shut down and they're like, I don't even know what I need to do. So what we do is we just kind of make that easy for people. We guide them to what they get. And that's really, the, like I said, that's our biggest, like as far as numbers, that's how we help the most people. The other website that we have is called scamspotter.org, common spelling, all one word. And that was a collaboration with Google. It was built in partnership with them. It's designed to be appropriate for, but not exclusive to, the senior community. And it basically provides guidance on how to avoid online scams and through three things. It tells people to slow down, spot check, and stop, don't send, you know, especially gift cards. You know, the IRS doesn't take gift cards for your taxes. So that's just kind of more obvious example. So those are our websites. And then we have other programs as well. So we're very excited about our peer support program for romance scam survivors. Romance scam survivors have greater needs than other cybercrime victims we found. Oftentimes they're elderly, and this crime not only leaves them short a large amount of money, but it often isolates them from their families. There's a high incidence of depression, and they really need some, some more help. And so what we found is is that we started an experimental program last year. We did three sessions. Uh, there are ten sessions each, but three cohorts, if you will, 
of, of this program and the reviews that we got were beyond our expectations. So we've continued that this year. We're going to do five or six cohorts this year and we hope to expand it next year. So we're very excited about that. We also have our military and veteran program, which was funded by uh, Craig Newmark Philanthropies and Comcast. And basically the idea, you know, well, first of all, the military veteran community, their losses are about 44% more than the average person. Probably a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly, but, you know, the transient nature, they get moved every three years or so. They're always relocating. The spouses are separated. You know, they can't always have direct communications to say, hey, I didn't send that kind of thing. Um, so for all those reasons, I, I think that they have a greater need for the kind of information we can provide them to help. And so what it does is we partner and we leverage a relationship with veteran service organizations to get the word out to the military and veteran community. So, in a, you know, in a brief nutshell, those are what, what we do and, and who we are. And like I said, you know, our, our primary means and the means that most people will access us is through that fightcybercrime.org. Now, the retail and hospitality ISAC has some small retail businesses in our membership that might be able to benefit from these resources. But it seems that these sites may also be beneficial for larger companies that want to educate their employees about security awareness. So what are some of the key topics that CSN covers that you would recommend that should be included in any security awareness training program, regardless of the size of the company? You know, cybersecurity, I, I often equate it to physical security. If you live in a neighborhood and you don't lock your door and all your neighbors do, if a burglar comes, I mean, whose house are they going to hit, right? Yours, because all they got to do is open the door and walk in. It's really akin to physical security in a lot of ways. There are four things that make you not the person with the open door that will take care of probably about 80 percent of the security things that people see. And the first would be implementing multi-factor or two-factor authentication on your important accounts. You know, passwords, so many of them are compromised on the dark web. You know, people have, I, I forget the number off the top of my mind, but it's a ridiculous amount of passwords we have to remember right now. So if you don't use a password manager, people use the same password over and over and over and over again. And these passwords get compromised. And if they get compromised in one place, they know your email address and then they just try all these different accounts. That works, right? It's, it's not that complicated. You don't have to be a genius to figure that out. So implementing two-factor authentication is really critical on, on those important accounts. And, and we're starting to see that, like, banks require it. I mean, you, I haven't seen a bank that hasn't required it. I don't think I would bank somewhere that didn't, to be honest with you, at this point. But it's also important for your social media, for your email, for other things. Anywhere it's offered, you would encourage people to take advantage of that. The second thing is automatic updates. A lot of times software and operating systems and applications on your phone, they're updated because they've uncovered a weakness that people can exploit. And the longer you leave that door open and that ex exploit not corrected, it's like leaving your door open at your house. So make sure you have automatic updates so you're notified when they're an update and that these things happen without you going to look for them every time. And you know as soon as they're done. So you implement automatic updates. So that would be the second thing. The third thing we would recommend is that you go to your social media accounts and you take a look at your privacy settings. Are you sharing your full birth date with everyone that's on Facebook? Probably not a good idea, right? And if you have 700 friends, 
you might not want to share your full birth date with 700 friends because I, I don't know anybody that's got 700 close friends. I encourage people to go on to their social media to take a look at their privacy settings and to, and to realize what they're sharing and who they're sharing it with. So oftentimes people don't do that. And, you know, the classic, like, don't post your vacation photos into your home because then people know you're out. Um, that kind of thing. Just a little bit of looking at it through someone else's eyes and how could they exploit the information that I'm putting out there. And then the last thing is to be aware of phishing and what that is and how to avoid it. And phishing comes in a lot of forms. I and mean, we could probably talk for an hour about phishing. What phishing is, is basically a website from somebody pretending to be somebody else. They're going to use the logos of that company or that organization, and they're going to send you to a link. You know, you give them your login information, be it your password, uh, your credit card information, uh, some other information of value that they can use. And they're basically using it to trick you. It's a false representation to be your bank, to be Facebook. This is the IRS. We're going to we're going to send people to arrest you if you don't provide us this. We need to authenticate you right now. Those kind of things. Right. So all of the, you know, the stuff that we talk about that I referred to earlier from our scam spotter website, there'd be a great resource to go through and, and kind of learn about that because phishing is, it's just the online version of me calling you up and trying to con you to give me something that you wouldn't like me to have. So it's the same thing, you know, slow down, spot check, you know, don't be rushed. They try to create a sense of panic, a sense of urgency that I have to do this right now so that you don't think about it. So slow everything down. You have time to think about it. You have time to consider the consequences. Do a spot check. You know, if it says it's Bank of America, you know, sign on to your Bank of America account completely separate from the email or text or whatever it is that you got imploring you to do it right away and see if that's, in fact, the case. And, and you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to find probably 99 times out of 100, you're going to find it's not the case because banks don't operate that way. Neither does the IRS or the Sheriff's Department or anybody else that they say is coming to do you harm immediately if you don't send money of some kind. And then, you know, stop, don't send. No legitimate organization is going to take a gift card as payment. You know, these kind of scams are the things that you see. So stop and think about it. And then, you know, the other thing we talk about is, and this is kind of a newer thing, Zelle is a very popular way to transfer money these days. I mean, if my family and friends go out to dinner and somebody picks up the check, I'll Zelle them my share. You know, the important thing about those apps like Zelle is they're for family and friends and people that you know and trust. They're not for uh, no legitimate business is going to ask you to pay via, a, a tra you know, those payment transfer apps. So be very, very careful. And you transfer money with Zelle or one of those payment apps, it's like you gave someone cash. You're not going to be able to get that back. Once it's gone, it's gone. But on a larger picture, just think about how you're being asked to pay for what it is, for the services or goods that you're getting, and does it seem appropriate? So hopefully that would provide some kind of basic top line if you do these things. You know, it's not to guarantee that you'll never be impacted by cybercrime, but that your chances are way lower. And I don't think I've ever been able to pay my electric bill with an iTunes gift card either. So, Right, right. Something but, about, but that was all yeah. great advice. 
Now, I know another thing that CSN really advocates for and makes it a point of their mission is to encourage people, even individuals, to report cybercrime to government and law enforcement agencies. Many people think, hey, listen, you know, I got ransomware on my personal computer. You know, I'm not going to be able to do anything about it. The guy is probably halfway across the world. But why is that the wrong attitude? Why is it so important that we actually do report cybercrime even if we don't think we're going to be able to get anything out of it. Let me answer that a little backwards. So before I worked for the Cybercrime Support Network, I retired from the FBI. I was an FBI agent for 20 years. And in the course of my FBI career, I've had my credit card compromised twice. And I didn't know who to report it to, and I worked in the FBI. You know, it was like a couple hundred bucks. I got reimbursed by the credit card company. They sent me a new credit card. And so I certainly understand people's reluctance to do that. Here's why it's important to do it. There's a couple things. I mean, first of all, you never know when the piece of information you provide, even though it's only like a couple hundred dollars and, you know, hopefully your credit card company made you whole, you could have the, the missing piece of a, a larger puzzle that would enable law enforcement to stop a, a network of people doing this. You know, what makes cybercrime so attractive to criminals is 3,000 counties in the United States I could do a scam in each one of those counties and keep it at a low dollar amount so there's low law enforcement interest. But since there's so many counties, and it's not limited just to the United States, right? I mean, it's the World Wide Web. I can go to Canada and everywhere, Europe. So I can do a lot of little scams that any individual law enforcement agency is going to go, and it's a couple hundred bucks. I've got car thefts. I've got assaults and you know bank robberies and everything else i got to deal with so it falls to the bottom, and they know that. By reporting, it could be the missing key, and this bad guy is somewhere. And if all of these crimes are going through, I'll pick on Cleveland because it just popped into my head, to Cleveland, that's a big case in Cleveland, right? And yours may be the piece that brought it over the top. So take the 15 minutes, go to the FBI's website, ic3.gov, fill out the report. Do not expect the FBI to show up at your door the next day to interview you and hand you your money back or anything in the vast majority of the cases it's going to be used for statistical and intelligence purposes but that's important too right because the fbi reports to congress and when they report that a hundred million people have been victimized by cybercrime congress gets this report they're the ones that decide how the laws are written to prosecute cybercrime they're the ones that fund law enforcement for training equipment so I think it's important for the country as a whole so that we get a big picture of how bad this problem is and for, you know, the decision makers in Congress and in the White House to get an accurate picture of how bad this problem is so that we can get better laws, more resources dedicated to it. So that's why we think it's important. In most cases, the person that's doing the report is not going to see a benefit in the short term. But we think in the long term, that's important to do. And that's that's why. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really given us a lot to think about. The 80-20 rule, knowing that just a few things can relieve up to 80% of your risk online, is such a great tool and something I would have never thought of. And also just realizing how important it is to report cybercrime no matter what. Now, before we get out of here today, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Well, one thing comes to mind on the reporting piece that I would like to add. If you have a cybercrime that involves the wire transfer of a significant amount of money, 
you need to call the FBI right away. Uh, you know, I would probably pick up the phone and call your nearest field office, but I would get somebody on the phone. I would report on an IC3 as well, but I would get somebody on the phone. And the reason I say that is the FBI a couple of years ago started a recovery asset team. And if they get word of a fraudulent wire transfer in the first 24 to on the outside 72 hours, they can recover that money often. The longer you wait, the less chance they have of being able to recover that money. You can go on their website and they'll tell you what their success rate is. I think it's on the order of 70%. So, you know, again, that's for wire transfers. You know, it would typically be a business email compromise kind of situation. But if you have that situation, call them right away because it, it may well be in your personal financial interest to do that in that specific case. Bob, thank you again for joining us. For everyone out there, this is Bob Bird of the Chief Strategy Officer at the Cybercrime Support Network. Please join us again next time. And thank you again for coming to join us today.